0: May be seated. Today will be more of a topical message. So there will be just a number of passages. I'd encourage you to take out your Bibles. Uh, I encourage you also to have the outline. Handy, it'd give you a lot of stuff. By the way, my purpose for the outline is that I know a lot of times I can't get through everything, and you can take it home and hopefully maybe use it, you know, just for uh, an overview. What are the three greatest days in human history? And again, as I say human history, I'm talking past. What are the three greatest days in human history? I believe the third greatest day in human history was the birth of Jesus Christ. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's, the I believe, the third greatest day in all of human history when God became man, took on flesh with the purpose of dying for mankind. I believe the second greatest day in human history is what we've just uh, celebrated, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus grew. In fact, it says in Luke that he grew just like a man. Grew in stature and knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He grew for 30 plus years. Again, perfect. Perfect God, man, never sinning. And going to the cross. And going to the cross again voluntarily, that's very, very important to understand. As he was about to drink the cup, which is the the Father's wrath against our sin, he did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. John 10 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. He being Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the cross. By his wounds you were healed. And again, that's talking spiritually primarily in that text. He died for our sins. And, and I want to make sure we're clear, because I was listening to a guy, and he was saying how confusing the atonement is. Do, do we realize that when we look at the Gospels, and we, real, and we see Christ, He is beaten, His beard is pulled out, His crown of thorns, uh, the mocking, the spitting, the... Uh, the scourging, which many times killed a man, and even the crucifixion, that was what man did to Christ. That was what the Gentiles and the Jews did to Christ. That was the suffering that mankind did to our Lord. And though that is important, and that was part of the process of the atonement, that was not where the atonement took place. If you go to Matthew chapter 27, you'll see where the actual atonement was accomplished, it says in verse 45, Matthew 27, 45, from now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, so that would be 12 to 3, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, it was in that, that time frame, darkness, where the Father poured out His wrath against our sin on the Son. That Jesus Christ carried our curse. He drank the cup. The wrath of the Almighty God was poured out on Him. He was crushed. And and you can see uh, that in Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the suffering. It happened in those three hours where the... It wasn't what humanity did to christ that purchased our salvation it was the wrath that god poured out on christ he became our curse and we could develop that in fact maybe next year i'm going to speak about christ as our curse see curse means that all your sin your anger and lust and lying and deception and selfishness and addictions and everything else that you are was placed on christ Remain the pure, perfect Lamb of God, and and God punished the sin, your sin, on Him, and the hell that we should have experienced, the hell that we should have, our hell, He paid for. We got to grab that, because again, sometimes um, I've I've listened to people, and it's almost not you guys, but. Um, it's, it's almost, they're thinking it's the scourging that saved them. Or the crucifixion itself. No, no. It was when the Father poured out His wrath against sin. It was the Father against the sin. I, I like what R.C. Sproul wrote. He said, the Lord your God. This, this is, when, when, when Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father replied to the Son, the Lord your God damns you. Now let that sink in. Christ experienced our hell. Christ paid for what we ought to have. Christ then is able to save us because he has paid for that sin. He experienced our hell so we can now experience his heaven. That was the second greatest day in all of human history. (coughs) The greatest day in human history, at least the past, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is risen, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Again, Jesus said, I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it up again. 1 Corinthians says that He rose again the third day, and as you heard this morning, according to the Scriptures, everything was exactly as it was told. Death is swallowed up in victory. See, all other religions have had its leaders. They're born... They live, and then finally they die, and that's it. That's it. They're dead. Only Christianity has had its leader rise from the dead. Christ, the risen risen Savior, makes our Christianity the only true way to God. And again, as you you present that to people, they're going to say, boy, you are really narrow-minded. You are telling me that every other religion are going to hell? What does the scripture say? Yes. Yes. Because Christ is risen. He's the Savior. He is the only Savior. So Christianity, excuse me, the resurrection is the hinge. It's the pivotal doctrine of our faith. The pivotal doctrine. And so we want to investigate that for just a few more minutes. Uh, I want to give you six evidences of Christ's resurrection. Six evidences. Again, Let me say in the front end, no person saw with their own eyes Christ rise from the dead. And by the way, why was it that the, you know, why was the stone rolled away? To allow Jesus to get out? No, so that we could get in and see that he is risen from the dead, or the women at least. See, when it comes to the resurrection, the enemies were not permitted to see it. And the friends were not expecting it. And that, that, by the way, is a very, very important point because it shows that they weren't trying to fake it, okay? And we're going to see that in a couple minutes. So let me give you six evidences. The first one is that the resurrection narratives don't seem to agree. This is one of the evidences that the resurrection actually happened because the narratives, if you, if you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you start looking at them, they don't seem to agree. And that itself gives weight to the fact that the resurrection happened. Now you're going to say, that sounds kind of odd. They don't seem to agree, but that actually gives weight to it. Yeah, actually it does. So if you look at Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, there seems to be uh, uh, many apparent small contradictions. Again, if this was a planned deception, the stories would be exact. See, like if I came and I said, Okay, Charlie and Billy and Don, I want to come up with a story. And I want to make sure everybody believes it. And I want it to be the biggest deception of all of human history. So let's, let's do this, guys. Let's get together on a Saturday afternoon. And let's spend all day Saturday making sure that the stories are exactly aligned. Because when you write Charlie and Bill and Don, I want to make sure you're saying the exact same thing that I am. Because if this is going to be believable, it all has to be the same. But see... This was written by the Spirit of God, by four individuals who did not see the resurrection. They saw the resurrection resurrected Lord. So this is how these small seeming contradictions. Let me first of all give you the, the variety of the statements about the timing about the timing at which the women first arrived. There seems to be contradictions. Matthew 28, one says it began, at, uh, began to dawn towards the first day of the week. It was the, it began to dawn. Mark says very early on the first day. Luke 24, verse 1, at early dawn. And John 20 says when it was still dark. So was it early dawn? When it was just about ready to dawn? Or was it dark? Must be the scriptures are not true. No. You know what the Spirit of God wants? The Spirit of God wants us to understand. No one saw the actual resurrection. All they're doing is they're giving their insight of what happened. They, only what they saw. Well, this is, this is what happened. Apparently the women set out when it was still dark and arrived as day was breaking. That makes sense. And each one wrote about when they were there. So some, yep, it was dark. It was very early, just as light was coming. The actual contradiction makes it so that, okay, there wasn't a planned deception. That's all I want you to remember. As you look, and, and by the way, this is very important. Even as you're looking at you know, the, the synoptic gospel, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then all John, just when you're studying that and you say, oh, there seems to be a variation. Oop, there seems to be a, be a variation. No, it's what, the, what, it's what he as a writer saw or heard, always correct, by the way, let me make sure you understand, always inerrant, always authoritative, but again, it shows that there is no planned deception, because four men who wanted to deceive would have got together beforehand and said, now let's make sure we use the same exact terminology, not with the the Bible, because this is God's book. How about this, a variation in, in detail in the midst of the essential harmony, the observers. In other words, the observers. Who were the observers? There seems to be a variation in who actually showed up at the tomb. Matthew 28 says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That'd be the mother of James. So Matthew only has two women showing up. Mark says it was the two Marys plus Siloam. Okay, so now we had a third woman showing. Luke 24 says, Mary, Mary adds Joanna and another woman, but never mentions Siloam. So now we have four women, but not Salome. And then John only mentions Mary. So really, what's, what's the truth? How many people actually showed up at the tomb? At least five. So you have Mary, Mary, Salome, Joanna, and another woman that's not mentioned. So you have five. Now, again, at first you could say, oop, variations. No, no. Because it was depending on who was writing, saying, oh, Mary showed up. Because he had a story about Mary and how Mary uh, met Jesus, and she thought he was just a gardener, but it turned out to be the Lord himself. But there was actually five women that showed up at the tomb that first resurrection morning. Or how about this? The authors leave problems for the readers that would have, have been eliminated if it had been a planned deception. They, they leave uh, problems. Like the problem of the disciples not always recognizing who Jesus at first was. Again, I just gave you the example of Mary. She supposed him to be the gardener. Remember when the Emmaus disciples are walking back and, and they're telling our Lord, and, and, it, and it says they didn't recognize him. And they're just talking. I mean, haven't you heard? And it says that he started with Moses and all the prophets and explained. But then a few verses later it says, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But see, the New Testament writes it down like, you know what? These were doubtful disciples. They, they didn't expect the resurrection. They, that wasn't on their screen, even though he had told them he was going to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting it. That gives a lot of weight to the resurrection. They weren't expecting it. When he died, they didn't get together and say, okay, now let's plan this out. Let's make sure there's no variation. And let's plan that at the very end he rises from the dead. They weren't expecting that. When you start reading the the accounts, it just becomes very obvious. It's like Thomas. I mean, unless I see the nail prints, I'm not going to believe. So what does he do? Go ahead. So again, in Galilee, we are told that the disciples doubted Matthew 28, and yet 11 of them worshipped him. So in Matthew 28, verse 17, what do we find? They've already, 11 of the disciples, which are the the apostles, they believe, but then again, they're still doubters. Like the, the scriptures keep making it clear. They didn't all turn at once and say, yes, he's risen indeed. He kept... In, infusing appearances to them. I like what Boy said, the record is not neat and clean, which gives it legitimacy, weight, and validity. See, the, the record is not neat and clean. And because it's not neat and clean, it points to the fact they, it wasn't a, a predetermined deception. So that's actually the first major evidence. The, re, uh, the resurrection narratives don't seem to agree. That's a major weight of saying yes, this was God. The God Man rose from the dead because all these disciples—they were scattered, they weren't sure, they were doubting, and they were disbelieving until they saw the risen Christ. Actually, I will give you one more. The accounts are honest, are honest, honestly, honesty and accurate, but had great simplicity. Great simplicity. Um, the gospel writers do not describe an actual resurrection. Because no one actually uh, witnessed it. Now again, if I had gotten together with these three other men and wanted to prove the resurrection, there were some things that I would have put into the text. I would have gone through to great detail of explaining the actual resurrection. Okay? Then he started moving. And then the the clothes started shaking. And that, right? You don't see that. All you see is he resurrected. Okay? Gone. He's he's not there. Angel tells the women, he's not there, he appears. Okay? uh, I mean, there are non-biblical books called the Acts of Pilate that do go through the actual process of the resurrection. That's not biblical. You see what I'm saying? I mean, if we were writing the text, we would have described in detail the resurrection itself, the descent of the angel, the moving of the stone, the appearance of the tomb when they first walked in. All those would have... Nothing. Why? Because the biblical text, what what did God want us to know? He didn't care. He didn't he doesn't want us he doesn't want us to concern ourselves with how the resurrection happened or the the, you know how was the tomb arranged. Just one very important thing, he is risen. right. So it goes right to that point, he is risen. So all the texts aren't together. Okay, how about the second one? The second evidence is the empty tomb. Again, some may deny the resurrection, but they cannot uh, deny that the tomb was empty. You can't deny that. Again, overwhelming evidence. There was no body in that tomb. So what has the enemy done? Come up with a lot of theories. Let me give you a couple, three. The first theory is the empty tomb theory. Okay, Uh, Excuse me. The mistaken tomb theory. The empty tomb and the mistaken tomb. In other words, that the ladies went to the wrong tomb. See, Jesus was in that tomb. They went to that tomb. But I want you to look at it in Luke chapter 23. Go to Luke 23 quickly. Luke 23 verse 55. Because after Christ is buried... He wrapped him in linen, laid him in the tomb. Verse 53. Um, But look at verse, and again, we're just going to be flipping around. Verse 55, and the women, women, plural, women, who had come with him from Galilee, followed after. Now again, this is when they're going to lay him in the tomb. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So we know that the women didn't have this by secondhand knowledge. They were actually watching the entire process. They watched him having the linen uh, wraps, the, the, uh, the um, uh, all the spices applied, him washed, linen wraps, the spices Then he would lay. And they actually was right there. They knew the tomb. They knew where he was laid. They understood the entire scenario. And yet there are mockers and scoffers and the enemy who would say they just mistook the tomb. No, they didn't. They knew exactly where it was. Sure, it was dark, but it was only dark at the beginning. Then it got light. It was no mistake. They knew exactly where the tomb was. The other theory, the second theory, is the swoon theory. The swoon theory says this. Jesus never died. He was taken for dead. And then in the cool tomb, he finally revived, moved the stone, and got out of there without anybody watching. But again, let's think about what happened. He's laid in the tomb, and we're going to see in a moment. Then there's Roman guards placed, because they didn't want anybody to steal the body. But even before that, what had happened to him? He had been beaten, he had been scourged, and he had been crucified. Any one of those many times just killed the person right there. A tremendous amount of loss of blood. In other words, there was absolutely no way that it could have been mistaken that he was truly dead. Then a spear thrust him, and then wrapped. So again, the swoon theory again falls away like dry grass. And then finally, the theft theory. Okay, maybe they knew where the tomb was. Okay, he, he did die, but someone stole his body. Again, Mary says, we don't know where you have laid him. Yet, again, think about this. If the disciples had stole his body, think about what, all, what happened to those, so many of those disciples after. They died for the faith. Do you think they would die for a false faith? Something that is, was just a major deception? One of the greatest evidences of the fact that, that truly he was, not only did he say he was going to rise from the dead, but he was willing to rise from the dead as all the martyrs throughout history. Willing to die for Christ. Because again, indeed, he was risen. In fact, look over in Matthew 27. The authorities thought this. They thought, well, maybe somebody would uh, try to steal the body. Matthew 27, verse 63. Twenty-seven, sixty-three. And... On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that the deceiver, that's Christ, said, after three days I will rise. Now again, this is the enemy. He said he's going to rise from the dead. I mean, I love, don't you love the Lord? He not only lets his disciples know, he lets everyone know, I'm going to rise from the dead. No one's going to stop me. But they're going to try to stop him. After three days I will rise, therefore command that the tomb be secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal away, steal him away. And say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And so Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Now do you think they made that secure? <laughs> you better believe it. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Yet people will say the disciples stole the body. (laughs) By the way, if a guard was told to stand there and guard it, and if anything happened where the stone was rolled or the body was taken or any of that, his life for life, I mean, his life was on the line. So that's the second evidence. The second evidence is this. It wasn't a mistaken tomb. It wasn't that he came back, just swooned back to life after he had a cold tomb. And it wasn't that his body was, was taken. It was that he rose from the dead. How about the third evidence? The third evidence that Jesus Christ indeed is risen. And that is the shape of the linen wrappings. The shape of the wrappings. In other words, the, the tomb was not quite empty. Okay? It was definitely empty of the body, but there was something laying there that actually pointed directly to the fact that he was resurrected. And that was the, the, the shape of the linen wrappings. Again, every society has its distinct modes of burial. Ancient cultur- cultures had no, uh, were, no, were no exception. Again, in Egypt, and you know this, many of them were embalmed or mummified, and you've seen that on TV, I'm sure. In Italy and Greece, often they were cremated. See, every society had their way of dealing with the dead. But in Palestine, they were wrapped in linen bands that enclosed dry spices and were placed face-up without a coffin in a tomb cut from the rock in the Galilean hills. Usually the body was wrapped in linen cloths, in such a manner as to leave the face, now again, I want you to catch this, the face, the neck, and the upper part of the shoulders bare. That's usually how they would prepare the body. The upper part of the head was covered by a cloth that had been twirled about it like a turban. No spices used on the head. All right? So they did not mummify uh, the, the nation to the to the south which is Egypt they mummified Palestinians didn't the israelites did not they would wrap the body there was open uh, an area that was left unwrapped and then just a turban on the head in fact in luke 7 verse 15 you might want to write that down 715 uh, talking about the widow's son that was raised from the dead it says this now catch this specifically so he who was dead sat up Now Again, that shows he wasn't mummified. He was able to sit up. Again, he was on his back to be able to sit up. And he wasn't in a a coffin. Because if he was in a coffin and he sat up, what would have happened? Wham! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we know from this passage. And then it says, and he began to speak, which means his face was not covered. So if you look at Luke 7.15, you get an idea of how, how Israelites... Prepared the dead. They would wrap, there was an opening, the mouth was left open, they would place them in a tomb. They weren't in a coffin, they were on their back. I like how James Boyce writes When Jesus was taken from the cross, his body was washed, and then it was wrapped in linen bands. A hundred pounds of dry spices, probably aloe and myrrh, were carefully inserted into the fold of the linen. Jesus' body was thus encased, not mummified, encased. His head, neck, and upper shoulders were left bare. A linen cloth was wrapped about the upper part of his head like a turban, and the body was then placed within the tomb where it lay until sometime on Saturday night or Sunday morning. He goes on and says this What would we have seen? Now again, it's not written in Scripture because the disciples themselves did not actually see. The actual resurrection. They saw the results. They saw him as the the resurrected Lord. But again, the actual moment when when his body went through, well, the cloth, as you're going to hear. So what would he have seen if we were right there at that very moment? You know, uh, Fox News, we are here at the tomb. We have just removed the stone. And now we're just looking at a dead body. All right, this is what we would have seen. Would would we have seen him stir, open his eyes, sit up, and begin to struggle out of the bandages? No, not at all. That would have been a a resuscitation, not a resurrection. If we had been present in the tomb at the moment of the resurrection, we would have noticed uh, that all at once the body of Jesus seemed to have disappeared. John Stott says that the body was, quote, vaporized, being transmuted into something new. In fact, it would have been like this, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. You'd been watching that, and you would have, you know, the body, and you would have known it was the body because the neck you would have been able to see. And what would you, all of a sudden, the shape started to just sink because the body was gone. So what what actually happened? At that moment, at that twinkling of an eye, when the resurrection, and again, we are talking not just, because again, his spirit never died, right? We do understand that. The spirit never, by the way, your spirit never dies. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, but if you're not one of Christ, if you're not a Christian, immediately at the point of death, your spirit goes to Hades, ultimately to hell for, for continual judgment. Uh, this is where we need to ask the very important question: Have you have we have have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because it's only Christ who can forgive your sins and make you one of His children, with your sins forgiven. Okay, so that you don't have to pay the penalty of hell. You don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. He's already paid that penalty on the cross. But again, Christ, Christ, uh, Spirit. And he even talks about Peter, you know, preached to the dead and and some other things we won't get into. But the point is, the only thing that you saw in the tomb was the body. All of a sudden, gone. And it's a bodily resurrection. A bodily resurrection. The linen cloths would have collapsed once the body was removed because of the weight of the spices and would have been lying undisturbed where the body of Jesus had been. The cloth which surrounded the head without the weight of the spices might well have retained its concave shape and have just, it would just have laid there and probably would have kept most of its circular fashion. Why? Because remember, there was blood. Blood would have dried, it would have created the ability for that turban to hold its shape. So if we were there at that moment, you would have seen this. I mean, you wouldn't have hurt anything. And then all of a sudden, the whole body, that would have just started sinking. And the turbine probably would have remained somewhat uh, so, uh, s- uh, circular. In fact, I got a picture of it. Not his, but... <sighs> you happen to have the picture, Meg? Now, b- by the way, this is not what... I, I put this one in because this is what you don't want to think about. Right? This is not how it would look. Because here it looks like someone got up and, you know, someone got up and kind of like, you know, scuffled it around and stuff like that, which you probably would have seen. This is just a drawing, but this is what it was. See, in other words, it was just there and all of a sudden, and there was a space between the shoulders and the head, and this was probably more, uh, you know, a concave type of thing, and it was just flat. Can you give me another one? A couple uh, This was an old uh, drawing back in the hundreds of years ago. But it just shows that back in that day, that's what they would have even even understood. Hundreds of years ago, they would have said, yeah, when uh, a Jew was burying uh, one of their own, that's what they would have had. It would have been, uh, and then this was uh, uh, out of a dictionary, I think it was. But there again, that's the same way. Except this would probably would have sunk. Because think about 100 pounds of uh, of, um, different spices and stuff. Now, this is what Peter and John saw when they came to the tomb. And let's go to John 20, because I want you to see, this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. I just love, I always go back to this, it's just like wonderful. Uh, John chapter 20. And we've got to get the context. John 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. And again, she was with others. Well, it was still dark, and Saul... Uh, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Why? So that she could see, right? (laughs) Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that's John, whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I mean, she is just, because this is before uh, she goes back and then that's when he uh, reveals himself to her. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and we're going to the tomb. Now let's pick it up, verse four. And and so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Well, he's younger, you know. I mean, it's like me running against a thirty-year-old or a twenty-year-old, you know, like they're gonna, you know, finally gets there. Look at verse five. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths. Well, who's the he? That's John. Okay. So John saw. The linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Now the word saw there is blepo. Now you're going to see three different words for seeing. That's all I want you to get. Three words for seeing. This is blepo. In other words, with his eyes he saw. He he looked at it, but he didn't go in. Okay, he didn't go into the tomb. Verse 6: then Simon Peter came following him. And went into the tomb. Now, Peter, you know, you gotta have love Peter. Yeah, he just do. Yeah, he just goes right in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Now he's seeing. Can you show that other? So I mean, they're looking in, they're peering in, and John looks. bleppo, he saw. He just means he saw with his eye, but Peter, it saw, It means to. Behold, it's therio, it's a different Greek word. It's it's to scrutinize, okay? So whereas John just looked at it, Peter is scrutinizing it. He's looking at just the grave clothes. And it's not clicking immediately, okay? He's scrutinizing it. But ultimately it means to scrutinize and behold with intelligence. Verse 7, and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes. Why? Because do you see the difference? It wasn't lying. Because if Jesus had gotten up and gotten out of the stuff, it would just have been thrown right there. But wait a second, the, the, it wasn't with the linen clothes, uh, uh, linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Now, don't read that and think, oh, when Jesus finally resurrected, he was like a neat and tidy guy. He went over to the head napkin and like folded it up. <laughs> no, no. It means it was, it was rolled and he was looking at it he was like, wait a second here. It's just laid out just exactly like Jesus was laid out, separated in the fold. In other words, the turban is there, but there's no Lord. Okay? So he scrutinized it. And then John entered, and it says, third word, oida saw, and that means to see with understanding. And here it says, this he saw, and what, what's the next two words? And and believed. See what happened? See the grave clothes proclaimed the resurrection. It shouted the resurrection because because all that happened was Poof, he just gone, and all of a sudden the, the torso just folded in with all the weight of the spices and the turban probably even kept its concave and it was just like okay and john or john walks kind of peers peter looks in he is studying it out and then john comes walking in behind peter and he saw and he believed ah ha, ha, ha. i mean can you imagine like an aha moment like goes on okay got it And he believed all that Christ had said that he would rise from the dead. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, Intelligent apprehension, apprehension, uh, understanding, produced absolute conviction. So again, Intelligent understanding produced absolute conviction. A glance at the grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. Let's since we're right here, look at verse 9, or verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, and they saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. See, they, it wasn't connecting. Wait a second, he, he, he said this. I think of all the evidences, that's my favorite right there. Just uh, see the shape of the linen wrappings. Let me give you three more just very quickly. The fourth evidence of the fact that Christ truly rose from the dead, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. You know, if you start counting them up through the the Gospels, at least 11 times he appears to certain people. See, first of all, he appears to Mary Magdalene. It's interesting, he appears to a woman first. Isn't that neat? I think that is so neat. Because in that society, women were looked down upon. He He goes to Mary first. So Mary Magdalene, then to the other women who were returning from the tomb. Three, he, he, he uh, appears to the Emmaus disciples walking along the road. Then he appears to Peter. then he appears to the 10 without Thomas, then the 11 with Thomas. Then in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to James. Number eight, he appears to the 500, First Corinthians 15. Ninth, he appears to a band of disciples who were fishing on the Lake of Galilee. that's John 21. Then to those who saw him ascend. And then finally to Paul. Over and over and over again he appears. And all these people were moved from debilitating despair to firm conviction, willing, what? Even to die. Why? Because they saw the resurrected Lord. I mean, if Christ is risen, He's not only Lord, He's King. Not only is He King, but He is, he is world conqueror. <laughs> so that would be the fourth evidence, the testimony of all the eyewitnesses. How about the fifth one? The transformed disciples. I mean, just take one. For example, Peter. I mean, tagged behind, denied three times, fearful, shut up behind closed doors, But what happened? After resurrection, what does he do? Stand up on what? The day of Pentecost. And actually is able to say, you killed the Son of God. I mean, what power? He was fearless. He was bold. Why? Because he saw Christ. But let me just, let me add one thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also transforms us. If you go to uh, Romans chapter 6, I want you to see, this is a very, 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 very practical thing. Because some of you are struggling. Some of you are deeply struggling. And you know, Christ not only breaks the, uh, the shackles of sin, we're no longer slaves of sin, we are slaves of righteousness, but, but he continually transforms us, changes us. Look at Romans 6. If indeed we've been baptized... It says, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Now, what's those last few words? Even so, we also should walk in, what? Newness of life. Are you walking in newness of life? Don't go by that question real quick. (laughs) Because as I've looked at my life, I've realized at times I have struggled with the same besetting sins without newness of life. I have struggled because, though I am saved and though I do believe in the resurrection, obviously because that's what you can't be saved without res- resurrection. I have not experienced the resurrection, re- resurrected power in that particular area of my life. See, if we say yes, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, you know what the resurrection does for us? The power of the resurrection transforms us. It takes us, not only does it rescue you from hell, it transforms you to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And yet some of us stay in our, the same sins year after year. And yet we will come and say, He is risen, He is risen indeed. You know, are you experiencing His resurrected power in your own life? Or do you still have those same besetting sin, that same anxiety and fears and hopelessness and depression at times? And Or, no, Lord, you are risen. Your spirit is in me. Your word is powerful and sharp. And, and Lord, I have hope, not just that I won't end up in hell. I have hope that right now I am changing and growing to be more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. I tell you, that's one of the greatest witnesses you have to the the resurrection of Christ. Not just the words, but look at your life. Look at where I was. Look at where I'm at. Look at where I'm moving. So I trust that you, like Peter, I mean, he went from fear to bold. (laughs) He went from stumbling to solid. And it was because Christ is resurrected. We need to be like that. And say it this way, Lord, I may not even know it. I don't even. There's times that he has revealed, and like, wow, wow. I wasn't catching how idolatrous I was. How much idols I had in my heart. And he would expose, and then over a process change. And Lord, thank you, because if you weren't resurrected, I would not have seen that. It wasn't me getting smart, it was you showing me. Are you changing and growing for Christ? I trust you are. Like Paul says, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. And the sixth evidence, very quickly, is the change in the day of worship. Man, I mean, the Jewish Sabbath was sacred. You were kicked out of the camp. You were considered a non-Israelite if you, if, if, if you uh, dissed the, the Sabbath. And yet, after Christ, what happened? All of a sudden, what do we read? Acts 20, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together. First Corinthians 16, upon the first day of the week, to, not everyone, I mean, first day of the week, first day of the week, first day of the week. That was huge. Because the Old Testament law said what? You had to keep the Sabbath. Now all of a sudden it's no longer the Sabbath, Saturday, it's Sunday. That itself proved right back, listen, Christ rose on the first day of the week, changed everything, changed everything. Well, I just gave you six evidences. Let me give you a a couple of facts since Christ has. Can we all agree that Christ rose from the dead? I I, I know that you. All right. Since Christ rose from the dead, number one. Now I'm not using the word evidence. I'm using the word guarantee. This is very important. This is a guarantee. It guarantees the validity of the Christian faith. It guarantees it. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, you can turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians 15. These are all found in there. Uh, Just three very simple things. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been risen. Now again, we know He has, but He's saying it from a negative. He's not been risen, then our preaching is vain. By the way, because He is risen, what? Our preaching is not in vain. But notice the last part of that verse. And your faith also is in vain. It's empty. It's devoid of truth. In other words, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our preaching is vain vain, and our faith is in vain. But again, Christianity is true. Why? Christianity is only true because Christ rose from the dead. The Christian faith says this, that only the Christian faith, only the truths that we are speaking of right now are true. In other words, all other religions are wrong, and this is where many I think this is where some of us are going to be hunted down and persecuted, and maybe it'll even get in our lifetime where you will have to pay a heavy price for what I'm just going to say right here. that Christianity is the only truth, and therefore, Islam is from Satan. Is that true? That is true. That Hinduism is false, Buddhism is false, Mormonism is false, Jehovah Witness is false, because none of them present Jesus Christ as the Son of God that completely takes away the sin of, by the way, Roman Catholicism is false. I'm not saying there is not some Roman Catholics that are saved, but if they're saved, they're going against their actual church confession. Because the church back in the 1500s says, if anyone says that you are saved by faith alone, let him be damned. That's the Council of Trent, and that has never been rescinded by the Catholic Church. I I, I say this statement, I say it periodically, and then I always hear this, oh, you hate Roman Catholics. I have a good part of my family that are Roman Catholics. I do not hate Roman Catholics. I love Roman Catholics. But if you know that someone's going towards hell, aren't you going to say something? Aren't you going to say, wait a second here, what you have is religion, but it's not true Christianity. So again, we have to speak truth, and when you speak truth, it makes people angry because it goes against what they believe. But Jesus in John 14 said this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So based on what Jesus Christ said, those others are false. And do not say this. Don't even allow this. If someone says, because I just heard it again. Well, you know, the Islam God, Allah, is the same as the Jewish God, Jehovah, just with a different name. No. I mean, even just just take it just from a very quick overview. Jehovah is three in one. In fact, Jehovah is the only true God that could ever love because there's a trinity that loves each other. Allah doesn't love. Allah doesn't care. Allah only wants... I mean, their false idea of their God is only that he wants to conquer. So again, be careful. Don't even allow it to say, well, the same name, same God, different name. The resurrection guarantees the validity of the Christian faith. Number two, it guarantees a believer's forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, we've come together, some of you were here, 8.30 in the morning. By the way, how'd you like 8.30 versus 6.30? Let someone know, because we're debating whether to have it at 6.30. Okay, um, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, you might have felt really good fuzzies inside, and you may have had a really nice breakfast, but it's, you're still dead in your sins. No, but wait a second. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Therefore, our faith is not worthless and we are forgiven. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, We have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it says, we, uh, Romans 5, we shall be saved by his life. Why? Because he lives. I think... Uh, Chris and Karen left. Did they? Did Chris and Karen Blades leave? I think they did. I met them, and they just got word that Penny is now failing more, even more quicker, more quickly. Um, had a chance to pray, to pray with them, and they went up. But I'm, I thought to myself that right there, man, I am so glad she's a Christian because she does, she has hope. She's not in her sins. She, oh, it, it's tough. It always is going to be tough from going from this life to the next, right? I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a journey there, okay? And it's hard. It's not easy. We don't want to, but thank God that she's a believer and she has her hope and let's pray that she has the peace that passes all understanding during this next time. We are not in our sin. We are not in our sin. Christ's work of redemption was accepted by the Father. And as we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, He forgives us because He paid the full weight of our sin on the cross. Have you received Christ? And if you want, by the way, more info, you can ask me, one of of the guys around here, one of the women around here. But I also got a bunch of these books. I love these booklets from John Blanchard. You know if you've been here for a while. But this is Jesus, dead or alive, and it really literally lays out the gospel. And it's neat because it's, it's, it's made for this time of year. If you guys want one, especially if you say, you know what, I have a friend that I want to give this to, or a family member, please take them. You know, we, we just went through the three greatest days, birth, death resurrection. Let me give you the final greatest day. But this is not history past. This is history future. This is what's going to happen. And that is the return of the king. See, we talk about his birth. We talk about his death. We talk even about his resurrection. But I'll tell you what the greatest day is. The greatest day of all human history is going to be Jesus Christ coming back. That's the greatest day. When the king returns, he's returning. I like what Revelation 11 says. He will reign forever and ever. He sits on David's throne. He sets up the millennial kingdom. And all judgment has been given to Him. In fact, John 5 says this, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Resurrection guarantees, now catch this, final judgment. Final judgment. Christ is coming back and He's going to judge all all mankind, both believers and and unbelievers. Let me conclude, and this is finally my conclusion. Question, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Did Jesus Christ truly rise from the dead? Thank you. If he did, it shows, it proves, he was the Son of God, he's our Savior, he's our Lord. And now I have final four questions. If he indeed rose from the dead... Would you be willing to believe in that truth? Yes. Yes. Have you? I mean, I want your faith to be strong. That's what God wants. Yes, I believe. Just think about John. Oh, he is he is alive. Because he didn't just see some linen clothes thrown in a corner. I like what Tim Keller writes. Every religion in the world can be described in one of two words. Do or done. Either you are saved by what you do—that's works righteousness—that will damn you to hell, or you are saved by what another has done for you, and that's Christ. Do or done. Most of this world are caught up in the religion of do. True Christians are re, are, are thankful that the Father, through the Spirit, has revealed to us it's what has been done. Complete. He said it is finished. Would you be willing to believe? I trust your answer is yes. How about question number two? Would you be willing to speak that truth with conviction? You're going to have a lot of family and friends around the next few hours. Are you going to say anything? And if you plan ahead of time, you might say, you know what, I think I'm going to get one of these books. I'll I'll hand it to them and then call them in about a week and see if they've read read it and can we talk about it. That's a great way to do it. Plant a seed and let it grow for a while. How about number three? Would you be willing to suffer for this truth? How about if you're rejected? How about if it offends the hearer? Will you stop talking? Are you willing to share the truth? And number four is, would you be willing to die for the truth? You know, we have so many great stories of Christians who were martyred for the cause of Christ. But I believe that that's coming to our doorstep very quick. At least suffering in some Offending, suffering perhaps, maybe even more. Maybe not in my lifetime, I don't know. But the question is, if he is risen, then walk with him. Speak of him. And speak of him even if it means suffering. Do it for what? Christ's sake. Let's, let's stand as we worship him.